Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, you cannot live in our day and time without knowing about uh, Amazon.com. And so uh, many of you are well acquainted with Amazon.com and probably one of the reasons why they reported a $60.5 billion revenue uh, last quarter. And so uh, it has risen as a global uh, merchandise giant, namely for its low prices, but it's the shipping. It's the two-day shipping that kind of caught on because folks love to have their stuff now. And so the reason that they have not put brick-and-mortar stores out of business, though, is because people really do want stuff now. And so although sometimes we can wait, sometimes we just want to go and, and take it off a shelf and take it home with us. And so you've still got places to go shop. And so while we do not like to wait, waiting is still a part of life. There was a man who wanted a car, a particular car, a car that he was going to have to special order. And so he contacted the factory and he said, I want to order this car. And so uh, he said, if I order the car today, how long is it going to take for me to receive this car? And the factory said, well, it'll take about two years. And he said, Ooh, they said, in fact, it'll arrive on the first Monday in October. And so the man said, okay, is, that gonna come, is it going to be in the morning or the afternoon? And they said, look, man, if you're going to wait two years on a car, why does it matter if it's the morning or afternoon? He said, well, I'm expecting the cable company that afternoon. And so he's trying to coordinate his schedule. Maybe so in certain places, but, but, but waiting is part of life. It certainly is where we live. Yet there are some things that are too important to put on hold. Some things are too important to have to wait. If you smell smoke in the house, you're not going to go to bed and say, yeah, I'm going to check on that in the morning and see where that smoke's coming from. You're not going to do that. If you start feeling numbness in an arm and you've got some, some pain in your chest, you're not going to think, well, I've got a doctor's appointment next month. I'll, I'll ask him about that when I go. Some things are too important to wait. Some of the things need to be at the top of the list. And one of those is the mission of God. In our lives, the mission of God cannot and should not be put on hold. And so we're in Acts. And this writing here in Acts begins with Jesus giving His church a mission. So in Acts chapter 1, if you remember in verse 8, He told the apostles, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the farthest parts of the earth. And so it's clear that this work of Jesus is to be a global enterprise. But for six chapters so far, it's kind of been a local operation. And so when you look at Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, you wonder, if did Peter really understand the words that are coming out of his mouth? Did he really understand what he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to say? Do you remember this in chapter 2 and verse 38? Peter said to the crowd there, You repent! And each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, that makes sense. That probably came off really well. Then he says, For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. You ever had a time when you were, like, speaking, and while you're speaking, your brain kind of detached, and you're listening to yourself? And you're like, what in the world am I saying and why am I saying that? I wonder if, if some part of Peter was thinking about this as he was saying those words. But you don't have to turn very far in the New Testament to realize that those he was talking about, the far off that he's talking about, 
are the people outside of the nation of Israel. They're non-Jews. And so right out of the gate, Peter announces here what Jesus is doing is for everyone around the world. But after chapter 6, those who are far off still seem to be written off. And so, which is why chapter 7 and chapter 8 become this bridge from what Peter preached to what was going to be realized. And so, where the whole church, the people of God, are moving to be a people who want to see the whole world redeemed. And so, Christianity is a converting religion. If Jesus really is the Son of God, if Jesus really did leave glory of heaven to come to this earth, if Jesus really did die as a sacrifice for the sins of humanity, and if Jesus really did come back from the dead, if that is true, then it's true for anyone, and it's true for everyone. Even Him, or even Her, whoever that might be. So we need not think of the church as having missionaries. We have some missionaries over here or over there because in fact, everyone added to the number by the Lord Jesus Christ is a missionary. And so mission is not a a piece of the church budget, even though we see it in a line item. Mission is really wrapped up in everything that we do. Every activity, every action of the church. We are a saved people to become a sent People. And so, spring is coming. I know you are looking forward to hearing about my lush, beautiful lawn as you have in the past, but spring is coming. And so when the rains leave, you know, lawns are going to need to be seeded and fertilized. Somewhere in this world, a lawn is going to need to be. It won't be mine. But So you've got seed and fertilizer that do no good unless they are scattered on the lawn. It does no good in the bag. It does no good on the shelf at the store. It's got to be spread out in order for it to be effective. The church must scatter in order to matter. we got to scatter to make a difference. And so throughout Scripture, you have this rhythm of the people of God gathering and then scattering and gathering and scattering and coming and going. And we gather to encourage and we renew one another. And we do that at times like this when we're assembled this morning so that we can go out And we can engage the world and we cannot escape the world. That's not our goal, is to come in here and escape the world. It's to come together to recharge and renew and refresh and remind so that we can leave here and engage the world around us. And so in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13, Jesus says, You, who? Those who are listening to Him. On a mountainside? Yes. Today? Absolutely. You are the salt of the earth. But you ever grab a salt shaker and you go to turn it, you turn it upside down to get some salt out and nothing comes out? Because it's what? It gets stuck, doesn't it? It gets stuck in the shaker. So what do you do? You take the shaker and you kind of put some pressure, you hit it, don't you? Put some pressure on it to try to knock it loose. That's chapter 7 and chapter 8 in Acts. God's grabbing the salt shaker here. In Acts chapter 1, we read, On that day, a great persecution began against them, against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were forced to scatter throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So remember what Jesus said. You're going to be my witnesses where? First in Jerusalem, then in Judea, and then in Samaria, right? But up until this point, everybody's been huddled up in Jerusalem until the persecution came. 
And so that word scatter that's used here is a farming term for when the farmer would go out with seed and would toss it out along the ground. And so that's what God is doing with His church. And so you've got the, the enemies who see this movement of this man Jesus and they think, hey, we're going to persecute them and we're going to pour water on this fire. But in fact, what they did is they poured gasoline on this fire and it ignited and it consumed the world from that point forward. The church was not silent, nor was it sedentary because God got the salt out of the shaker. And so God has this mission and Jesus first articulated that mission and then He animated, put it into practice, that mission, and showed us that God's mission is to seek and to save the lost. And this was not going to be put on hold. And so we must read Acts as an example and not an exception. It's not an exception. A marvelous, miraculous time way back then. God's church is still living and active and moving by the will and the lead of God. And so this ripple, the church, this ripple scatters and covers and smothers like a global wave. And it does that when our test of life becomes our testimony of Jesus Christ. And so Stephen, one of those men who was chosen to help with the the, the distribution of the food to the widows, that little problem that came up in the early church there, Stephen goes to a particular synagogue called the Church of the Freedmen. And so it's in chapter 6. And so you've got people who come to this synagogue from other countries and they're all assembled there. And among the group of these people are people from Cilicia. The capital of Cilicia is Tarsus. And so there was a fellow there named Saul of Tarsus who was listening to Stephen preach this message. And this message sounded a whole lot more inclusive then Judaism had been tolerating. And so they made up some charges against Stephen, saying that he was preaching against the temple and against the law of Moses. And they bring Stephen before the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. And Luke says in Acts chapter 6 and verse 15 that all who were sitting in that council looked intently at Stephen and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, if you have done much reading... In the Old Testament, this ought to set off some familiar bells. Whose face shone with the glory of God in the Old Testament? Do you remember this? When Moses came down from the mountain, his face shone with the glory of God. Moses, the very man they say that Stephen is attacking. Now, Luke is pointing out to us, Stephen looks like Moses. And they hate it. <laughs> they hate it. And they say, you're, you're tearing Moses down. But in fact, God illuminated Stephen so that he would look like Moses in this moment. And Stephen lets loose with this sermon going through the history of the Jewish people and he gets in trouble for telling the truth. You ever get in trouble for telling the truth? Guys, we've talked about this, the struggle of, of husbandry. Do I tell a white lie or do I tell the truth? Stephen was telling the truth. They didn't like it. Now, they liked their story. They just want it told a certain way. They want it told the way they want it told and not necessarily how it happened. And so, Stephen makes these three points. He says, first of all, God has always worked outside the boundaries of the temple. You think about Abraham, there was no temple. You think about Joseph, there was no temple. You think about Moses, well, he eventually had a tabernacle, but there was no temple. 
You guys are so wrapped up in God and the temple, God has always worked outside the confines of the temple. You cannot put God in a box. God shows up outside the boundaries of Israel and the temple. And He says, and secondly, you have no room to judge anyone regarding keeping the law. And so they need only to look at themselves. When in the history, as Stephen says, of our people, have we been good about keeping the law? And thirdly, he says, you are constantly rejecting the very people that God sends and God chooses to send. And so like his brothers rejected Joseph, like the people rejected Moses, like you killed the prophets, and now you've rejected your own Messiah. And boy, they didn't like that. Not one bit. But they covered their ears and shouting with a loud voice and they rushed at Him with one intent. And when they had driven Him out of the city, they began to stone Him. And the witnesses laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is not throwing rocks at somebody. You don't go out and pick up some gravel and throw it at somebody. These are... Rocks, two-handed rocks. Rocks that you cannot just toss, but you must hurl. This was a terrible way to die. And it usually wasn't quick. They didn't go for a headshot early. And they continued to stone Stephen while he prayed. He prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound familiar? Who just prayed, Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And then Stephen, he fell to his knees and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Who cried out to God the Father, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And when Stephen had said this, he died. And some devout men buried Stephen, chapter 8 and verse 2, and made loud lamentation over him. Stephen died with the attitude of Jesus. But see, Stephen was treated like Jesus. Mistreatment should not surprise missionaries because they tell a story. Missionaries tell a story that not everybody wants to hear. Which is why Peter can later write in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, he says, Dear friends, don't be astonished that a trial by fire is occurring among you as though something strange were happening to you. And in verse 16, But if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But glorify God that you bear such a name. And how it seems to me today that Christians in America get so upset too often that our rights are not being respected, that we're being targeted, that we're not being treated like we're the home team. When have we ever been the home team? This world is not our home. We're just passing through. Our mission is to be an alternative to a culture, a peculiar people. Not to consume the culture, but not to be consumed by it. And so we're not the dominant culture. And when we recognize throughout history from the birth of the church how adversity has always been our greatest opportunity, it's when we're at our best. And yet we try so hard to run from it. Because it's hard. Because it's hard. Chapter 8 and verse 4. Now those who had been forced to scatter went around proclaiming the good news of the Word. 
So Philip went down to the main city of Samaria and began proclaiming the Christ to them. So there was great joy in that city. These ripple effects of sadness and mourning that were going on in Jerusalem, they rolled into great joy in a whole other city. What began as tragedy in one place, the ripple effect became joy as that news and those people spread out. And so these disciples were willing to go through anything so that the Gospel could continue to go through them. And isn't it true, if you think back on your life, isn't it true, typically, you have been the strongest when your test was the hardest? Has your testimony not been the strongest when the trials you're going through are the hardest? So what if we just stopped expending so much energy asking the culture to embrace us and we, in fact, just simply embrace the Gospel and go wherever that takes us, no matter what the cost is? We certainly have scriptural evidence of how the Gospel spreads and how the church grows when Christians scatter, cover, and smother their lives with the truth of Jesus. And if you are over 60, one of the greatest testimonies that you can make to these younger brothers and sisters, these younger Christians here, is that in 20, 30, 40 years from now, it's not going to matter what anybody thought about us as a Christian. What is going to matter is were we faithful to the mission of God? It's not going to matter at your school. It's not going to matter at your job. It's not going to matter down the street. Just be faithful to the mission of God. And the power of the Gospel is realized in lives when we don't fuss about the test. That's when Christ shows through us. And that makes people stop in their tracks. Or when we try to run from the test. Or complain that we shouldn't even be having to go through the test. But when we let that test become our testimony, the power of the Gospel is realized in our lives. And God is always on the move. He's always been on the move. And the church always struggles to keep up. But our focus must not be on the gathered so that we neglect the duty to gather. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Are you still praying this prayer with us? We started this in January of 2017, putting this before us as a prayer. Central thought. Father, bring workers to this congregation and send workers from this congregation. Jesus says, why? Because the harvest is plentiful. But the workers are few. Y'all watch the Olympics. Did you see the, 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 the ladies' hockey gold medal match? Did you see that? I looked for some stuff on that. I couldn't find it, but I found some in soccer. I want to make a little comparison today. Now, I, I'm not a soccer guy. I really prefer football. Please take no offense. Especially Millers. Take no offense. I prefer, prefer football. It's spelled correctly. Not football like, like it is in the, the other parts of the world. But there's this thing called a penalty kick that when the ball, ball is placed like 12 yards from the goal, and these players take turns, they, they kick this ball between 60 and 80 miles an hour. Can you, they kick a soccer ball between 60 and 80 miles an hour. 
That ball still could not pass Ann Camp out here on Warden Road. But there's an 85% success rate on a penalty kick. 85% success rate. But there's also this thing called a shootout. And this is what I was thinking of with this hockey match. This thing called a shootout at the end of a game where five players get to kick. And what they found out is that if you're the last kicker, if you're the last one in line and you have to make that kick so that your team doesn't lose, the success rate goes down 62%. But if the score is tied and you come up to make this kick and now you're kicking so that your team will win the game, the success rate goes up to 92%. And so 62% I'm kicking not to lose. 92% I'm kicking to win. Why is that different? It's the mindset. It's the mindset in Christ. As the church, we are not playing not to lose. That's not what we're doing. The church is on mission playing to win. To reach as many people as possible by all means as possible, as soon as possible for the kingdom and glory of God. So am I playing to win or am I playing to lose? Am I living my life not to lose or am I living my life as a, as a conqueror, as triumphing in Christ? It changes our mind, our attitude, our relationships. It changes our interactions and it changes how we see people who do not have Jesus Christ in their life. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, For by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not from works so that no one can boast. See, this is God's doing. It's God's invitation. It's God's mission. But the mission will stall when God becomes small in our hearts and our minds and our lives. When God fits in a box and He stays on a shelf and He becomes so predictable in our lives. We're not asking God to bless our mission. We're trying to join God on the mission that He has already begun. He began it when He created the world, and that is to fill the earth with His image. Scattered, covered, and smothered. But see, that requires movement. And I love reading about the church in Antioch. Acts chapter 11. They were the the first church to start preaching to Gentiles. They were the first church to, to send out a mission team. And they were the first church to be called Christian. But you cannot stay where you are and be on the move at the same time. Jesus came to this earth when when the invitation list to God's banquet was very short. Very few people on that invitation list. And Jesus didn't change God's attitude, but He revealed what God's attitude has always been. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 27, Jesus says, "...all things have been handed over to Me by My Father." No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son decides to reveal Him. Come to Me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke on you and learn from Me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy to bear, and My load is not hard to carry. And so we see in Acts chapter 7 and 8, that God is the greatest seeker of all. And to join God's kingdom mission, we must include people who in the past got left off of the list. And so Philip was in the middle of this awesome revival going in Samaria here. And just to show us 
how important one person, one soul is to God. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 26, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go south on the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. And so he got up and he went. And there he met an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. So you have this Ethiopian eunuch who already has three strikes against him here. He's the wrong race. He's not Jewish. He's Ethiopian. He has the wrong physical condition. He's a eunuch. In fact, there were Old Testament laws that prohibited eunuchs from going into the temple. And he apparently has no knowledge of Scripture. And so, in fact, he's doing just a little bit of light reading from the scroll of Isaiah, as you imagine. And he has no clue what he's talking about. And so Philip asks, hey, you know what you're reading? You, you understand what's going on here? And he says, no, I don't. And so then the guy who had gone up to Jerusalem to worship God and gets there only to find out he can't go into the temple. God sends the temple to the eunuch. And the temple climbs up in the chariot. And so Philip starts speaking. And beginning with this Scripture, proclaim the good news about Jesus to him. Now as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, there is water. What is to stop me from being baptized? Why did he ask that question? What is to stop me? The reason he asked that is because his entire life, he had been told that things were in the way. Your skin is dark. That's in the way. You're a eunuch. That's in the way. You don't know the Bible. That's certainly in the way. And 20 centuries later, prejudice is still the great barrier to the mission of God. If I do not believe the Gospel can reach everyone, then I must believe that what Jesus did on the cross was not enough. If the Gospel cannot reach every willing, open heart on the face of this earth, then what Jesus did on the cross was not enough. It can't be both. And so we must refuse to let anything stand in the way of a person who needs the grace of God. Including me. I cannot stand in the way either. Has God's mission been on hold in your life? Have you ever considered that it was not by chance that you were scattered to your job or scattered to your school or scattered to your neighborhood? Have you ever considered that maybe it wasn't just things aligning? Maybe somebody aligned them? Have you ever considered that? So what's your next move? What's our next move? Because the people of God are on the move. What's our next move at Summers Avenue? We scatter to matter. We leave the salt shaker. See, God's not hoping people are saved. He's sending missionaries to ensure it. And each week of our life, I believe God presents us with a mission opportunity. I believe it because I've seen it in my life. I've met people and I've been in circumstances where I have had a choice to make. Do I speak the Gospel? Do I speak Christ in this moment? Or do I remain silent? See, I believe God gives us mission opportunities should we choose to accept it. And too often, perhaps, 
We're so disconnected that we don't even recognize it. Or maybe we don't think it important enough to act upon. So where is your Samaria? Who is your eunuch? Who's your Ethiopian? God did not call us to play, not to lose. We are called to risk and to suffer and to trust and always to love. And there's one thing about the first move. First move is always the hardest, isn't it? Or most of the time at least. But that first, from that first move, this ripple effect can grow. Grow into a swell of action that scatters, covers, and smothers the world with the good news of Jesus. But the question becomes, what am I going to do about it? What is my move? What's your next move? See, what sin does, sin keeps us grounded. Keeps us earthy. But we're not supposed to be earthy people. Yeah, we're created from the dust of this earth, but we were recreated in Christ for an eternal home. And so the change that came was not just to our heart and washing sin away from our life, but a change to our mind and where our entire thinking is refocused on eternal things, eternal people, eternal purpose. But sin, sin blinds us to that. So this morning, maybe you're struggling with some sin. Maybe you're struggling with something in your life that's keeping you from scattering, smothering the world around you with the love and the hope and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And this morning, will you repent of that? Repentance is not a commandment. Repentance is a gift. It's a blessing. God says, you come to Me and you confess your sin. And He is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins. That's a gift. That's the grace of God. Something we don't deserve, but something we get to partake of. So this morning, as we're assembled together, gathered together as family, can we pray for you in this moment? Perhaps you've been studying and you realize that there is one way to God the Father. And that is through Jesus Christ the Son. And you're ready this morning to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of God's Spirit. We want to celebrate and rejoice with the angels in heaven today in your decision. If you will come, come with your need this morning as we stand and sing this good song.